It's always such a privilege to get to be with you here and uh, not only to be with uh, those of you who are friends, but especially to be with Scott and Debbie and Barbara and the whole family. Every time we're here, I learn something new about my brother Scott. For example, this year, I learned that uh, not only can he make a great homemade peach ice cream, but that he is a lover of bunny rabbits. And uh, I won't tell you about us trying to catch six bunny rabbits in their living room a few nights ago, but that really did happen. Thank you for hosting us here in Idaho for that retreat. We were supposed to be in Guatemala, and because of COVID, we couldn't be there. And, and so just a couple of months ago in that Board of General Superintendents meeting, they, we said, what are we going to do? And I said, have you heard about McCall, Idaho? And in a matter of about an hour, we had reservations made in McCall, and I, we probably will come back. Uh, one, of my, one of my happy places on earth here, here at McCall. In fact, we had a couple of you who were there at McCall Church of the Nazarene, and so if you're hearing me preach for the second week in a row, and you wanted to hear your pastor, I'm sorry about that, but... You ever ask yourself this question, why are some of the stories of Jesus given to us in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are also called the Synoptic Gospels, while other stories were untold? Do you remember what John said when he talked about, he said that if all the stories about Jesus had been put into books, there would not be enough libraries in the world to hold them all, or something like that. And I think John was probably being a little hyperbolic in that, but he was trying to make a point, and it was simply this. There's lots of stories of Jesus that, that aren't in these Gospels. So why do we have some of these stories and while others are not there? Which leads to the next question, which is this. Of, because there are many stories left untold, why are there also some stories that get repeated? So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell many of the same stories of Jesus. But did you know it goes even deeper than that? Because there are actually two stories that get told about the life of Jesus that appear in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why did the early church feel like those two stories were so important? In fact, if you take away the passion of Jesus, Holy Week, uh, the, the gathering of the disciples in the upper room, and the cross and the resurrection... You take those stories out, and there's only two stories that we tell in all four Gospels. So why did the early church say, this is a story that we must tell again and again and again? In fact, we're going to do it again this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 6. We're going to look at Mark's version of the feeding of the 5,000. But I want you to be thinking to yourself, what would this story have been like being heard if you were hearing it for the first time? And why did the early church say, of all of the authority of God's word, this is a story that we must tell again and again? Mark chapter 6, we're going to pick up the reading with verse 30. Would you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of the Lord. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. 
Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. That's a funny way to put it. Jesus said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, um, that's in the Greek actually, that word, um, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And then taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and they were all satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we all say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you. Let me set the context of this passage. For the very first time in their public ministry, the disciples, the 12 apostles, have been on a mission of teaching and preaching and healing without Jesus being with them. And they had been sent out two by two, and as they went out two by two, they discovered that there was authority when they did that in Jesus' name. And we're told in Mark's gospel that, that people who could not see were given their sight. People who were blind, uh, people who were lame could suddenly walk. People who were demon-possessed were given freedom, and they saw miracles happen. And they came back to report everything they had done and seen and taught. And they were so excited. They were exhilarated to be able to share what they had seen done in the power of Jesus' name. But not only were they excited, Jesus could see something else in his disciples. He could also see that they were exhausted. How many of you know that, that kingdom ministry can be exhilarating and exhausting at the same time? And Jesus could see that in them. And rather than judge them for being human, he understood their humanness because he too was human. And so he said, this is all great to hear, but, but I have an idea. We need to take a retreat together. I know a place, Jesus said. It's a place where we can go. There's not crowds of people. We can tell great stories. We can eat great food. We can take long naps. We can have long conversations. We can restore our souls in this place. 
And all the disciples were happy about that. They were excited to go. And so Jesus said, let's head to that remote and isolated place. But you'll never guess what happened. One of the disciples got on Facebook. <laughs> and he marked where they were going on Facebook. And by the time they got to this remote and isolated place where there weren't supposed to be any people, there was not only a crowd of people there, it was a massive crowd. It was the biggest crowd perhaps they had ever seen. The Bible says, according to Mark, there were 5,000 men, which lends us to assume that if you add women and children into that number, that there were at least 10,000 people there. That's the number we're going to go with. 10,000 people. And the disciples saw those people and they all went, oh no. And Jesus saw the people. And even though he was tired, even though he was exhausted, the Bible says he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were, they, they were harassed. They were confused. And so he teaches them all day long. Well, now the sun's beginning to set and, and the disciples are getting worried because, again, remember, this is a remote place. They can't, there's no McDonald's nearby. They can't order out for pizza and they know that most of these people haven't come prepared to be able to be there overnight. And so they go to Jesus a little worried and they say, Jesus, send them away. Send them away so they can take care of their needs. Now, the initial response you might have is one that I had when I first read this, which is simply to say, well, that sounds a little harsh. Send them away. That sounds a little bit heartless. But then I got to thinking about the context and I realized here that that actually it was, a, it was out of a sense of compassion that those disciples had sent them away because they could see this huge, massive need that they did not have the resource to be able to meet. They could not meet the needs of 10,000 plus people. And so it wasn't because they were heartless. It was out of a sense of deep compassion themselves, I think, that they said to Jesus, send them away because we can't help them. And Jesus does what he often does when we think we have things figured out. He said, you give them something to eat. Now, this doesn't say this in the, in the scriptures, but I, I, you kind of get the feeling that if you read behind the lines that, that maybe the disciples started to say something like, Jesus, maybe you don't understand the situation here. I mean, can you do math? There's 10,000 plus people here. There's 12 of us. We've all left our real jobs to follow you. And, and besides, even if we had the money to take care of a meal for all these people, is that going to be the best use of our resources? That we would blow all, everything we have on one meal for 10,000 hungry people. They tried to kind of explain to Jesus the situation. But instead of just letting it go at that, after he said, you give them something to eat, then Jesus asked the question, what do you have? I'm not asking you what you don't have. I'm very aware of the fact there's 12 of you and 10,000 plus of them. What I want to know is what do you have? Go and see. So in my mind's eye, I can kind of see what happens next. The disciples kind of spread out. They're doing a kind of a recon, uh, you know, a recon thing. And, and they're spreading out among the crowd saying, excuse me, what, did you bring anything? What, what do you have? Did you bring something? And, and they go through that whole crowd. They mill around and they come back and, and they're, they're a little bit ashamed. 
They're all kind of standing in a row, and Peter, maybe he's the one standing there holding this bag, and they say, are you going to tell him? Jesus says, what did you find out? And Peter says, well, we have five loaves and two fish. Now, I looked this up in the Greek, and what, you know what five loaves and two fish means in the Greek? Not much. And Jesus, I love this moment. He says, perfect. Perfect. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to have them sit down on the green grass, which is a really odd thing to say if you think about it, because if you read through the Gospels, you know that we don't often, we're not often given a lot of detail. We're not giving detail that descriptive or that prescriptive that Jesus would say something like green grass, especially in Mark. Mark is really, really spare in, in what Mark does and says. So why didn't he just say, Jesus said, tell them to sit on the ground? Or why didn't he just say, have them sit on the grass? Why the green grass? And then it began to dawn on me, maybe, maybe Jesus through Mark was trying to tell us that this is a broader theme. And I begin to wonder, is, is green grass something that appears in other places of Scripture? And you know what I found out? It's everywhere. It starts all the way in Genesis where it talks about the first creation, how God made everything good. And one of the things he did that was really, really good is he gave all the animals of the field green grass to eat. There were no carnivores in the first creation. Nothing died. There was no violence in the first creation. Even lions, according to Genesis, ate straw like the ox, the green grass. And then I found out it appears in the Psalms. The Lord is my shepherd. I he will lead us beside quiet waters. He will lay us down in the green pastures. It appears in the Psalms. It appears in the prophets. Isaiah, he talks about green grass. It appears in the gospels. And believe it or not, green grass appears all the way at the end of the, the scripture in the book of Revelation. And here's what I discovered about green grass. Whenever you see green grass, what it means is that this is a sign of the inbreaking kingdom of God. This is a sign of the new creation. Green grass, God is going to do something for us in this moment that we cannot do for ourselves. Green grass is a sign God is in this place. Have all the people sit down on the green grass. And then I love what happens next. It says, Jesus took the bread. And I know this is a little bit of a sideline maybe on, on the whole exegetical overview of this text, but I love this part that says, in the hands of Jesus, all things become possible. And there's four verbs that follow. It says, it says, Jesus took the bread, Jesus blessed the bread, Jesus broke the bread, and then Jesus gave the bread. Jesus took, Jesus blessed, Jesus broke, and then Jesus gave. And if that sounds familiar, that's because that's what happens every time your pastors serve communion. This is a Eucharistic moment. This is, this is a sacramental moment of Jesus breaking and blessing and giving to the disciples. 
It kind of reminds me of a story that happened when I was pastoring in, in Kansas City, and, I, and I'd said to uh, our, our worship pastor, it was going to be a Good Friday service, and we were going to have a tenebrae service and a, and a Good Friday kind of a service of, of shadows, and, and we were going to serve communion. And I was thinking, you know, it's going to be great because I want to, I want to make this really culminate in the, in the moment of the Lord's Supper, and I'm going to I'm going to take this piece of bread like Jesus took it, and I'm going to hold it up, and I'm going to bless it, and I'm going to break it, and everybody's going to just, you know, get so sacramental. But what I didn't tell him, I said, now go buy some bread, you know, just kind of like the brown, round bread that, that might look like something that would be Jewish. <laughs> and so he did. But I knew I'd made a big mistake that I didn't tell him exactly what kind of bread to get because that night with a full packed house on a Good Friday, at that moment when I went to pick up the bread, I realized I'm in big trouble because this wasn't just kind of ordinary soft bread. This was the bread with the big, hard, crusty outside that feels like it's really light on the outside, but you could kind of, you'd break your toe if it dropped on your foot. And so here I am in that service, I'm going something like this. And Jesus took the bread and he broke it. <laughs> and Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And I'm not kidding you, two minutes later, I'm like, Jesus took the bread. <laughs> About that time, the bread just shattered and, you know, the shells went all over the front part of this. Has nothing to do with this story, but it's, it's just a funny thing. <laughs> but that's kind of what was happening in this moment. It says, Jesus took the bread, Jesus blessed the bread. Jesus multiplied the bread and then he gave it to the disciples to finish the miracle. Now, I don't know why it is about God that God, God may do 99% of something that's supernatural, but for whatever reason, God always says, I'm going to use my people to complete this miracle. There are very few things that God does in the world that God doesn't do through God's people. So for whatever reason, Jesus chose to complete this miracle by putting it into the hands of the disciples. And then this is what it says next. They all ate, someone say all, and they were all satisfied. Now, don't you think it would have been enough of a miracle if it were to say that they all got one bite and, and they all got to taste one piece of fish. How many people were there that day? 10,000 or so. How many loaves? How many fish? How many of you know that five loaves and two fish isn't even enough for Scott and Debbie and Christy and I to have dinner on? It would have been a miracle to say that they all got one taste of bread. That would have been a miracle, but that's not what it says. It says they all ate and they were all what? And the word satisfied means really, really full. You know that moment you have on Thanksgiving afternoon about 5 o'clock? And you're... You're now, you just finished your second helping of turkey and cranberry sauce and stuffing, and you're laying on the couch, you're watching the Detroit Lions get beat again, and you're almost in a turkey coma, and somebody comes up to you and they say, you want another piece of pumpkin pie? And you say, "Woo! oh no, 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 I, I, couldn't, I couldn't eat another bite. That's what this word means. 
It means they all ate and they all went, Woo! I couldn't eat another bite. I am so stuffed. They all ate. They were all satisfied. How many people were there? 10,000. But it's not over yet. The very next moment says this. Jesus says, now, go pick up the leftovers. Leftovers? I thought they just all ate and were satisfied. What, what do you mean there's leftovers? There's a lot of interpretations of what this means. I mean, some of it is, is may, maybe Jesus wasn't a litter bug. Maybe Jesus was going green. Maybe, like our friend Glafer used to say, Jesus doesn't waste anything. He, he doesn't waste any of the scraps, Barbara. That's what Glafer would say. I, I, I think probably all of those, maybe, I don't know, maybe they're true. But you know what I think? I think there was another reason. Because how many basketfuls did they pick up at the end? Twelve. How many apostles were there? You think that's a coincidence? Twelve apostles, twelve baskets. You know what I think was happening? I think all of those disciples, Peter, James, John, Thomas, Judas, I think they're all going like this. I know there were just five loaves and two fish. But not only did everybody eat and was everybody satisfied, but this Jesus doesn't just give us what we need. This, this Jesus goes overboard. He gives us more than we need. This, this is an extravagant Jesus. There's stuff left over. Why is this story that, that the early church said we have to keep telling this story again and again and again, even so that we're here in the 1st of September in Nampa, Idaho, telling it again? I think there's a couple of takeaways for us. Ministry is hard. And the needs all around us will always be greater than the church has resource for. In fact, I would suggest this. If the ministry needs, as you look around the Treasure Valley and wherever else you may serve, if you're online, if you look at the needs of your community and you say, we've got this whole thing covered, we, we've got what it takes to make this happen, then let me just suggest to you, your vision's too small. That's not a God-sized vision. If you can do it, if you can take care of the needs of the people all around you, the spiritual needs, the physical needs, and, and all of the rest, then, then you don't have a God-sized vision. You have a we vision. And a we vision says we can do what we do by just kind of, you know, tightening our belt and giving a little more and praying a little more. That's not a God-sized vision. There, there's, always, there's, there's always kind of a thing that goes on with pastors, Pastors are always thinking about how much better it would be if, if I was in that church. You know, I, I pastored a, a smaller church, I pastored a large church, I pastored an even larger church. And here's what's fascinating. It didn't matter if it was the first church in Livermore or if it was the last church in Bethany First Church. We never had enough. Now, we had a bit, lot bigger budget at Bethany First than we had in Livermore, California, but just because you add a few zeros on the end of your budget, it doesn't mean that the needs don't go away. 
You never have enough. That's the, big, that's the big trick. You always think, if I could just be more like that group, or if we just had what that church had. No, the truth is, the needs are always bigger than what we have supply. And not only is that not a bad thing, I think that's the way God intends it to be. I, I'd go so far as to say, if, if it wasn't, if the thing got turned around, we would actually, we might be outside of God's plan. Because God's plan is that we will always have to depend on him. And so there's a sense in which Jesus doesn't keep send, coming to us when we keep saying, send them away, send them over there. I mean, the Baptist church, they do VBS, send them over here, send them to the charismatic church. You know, they, they do, you know, celebrate recovery. Send them someplace else where their needs can be met. And Jesus never says, you take care of the need because you have everything that, it, that, it, that is needed. Jesus always starts by saying, what do you have? He doesn't ask us what we don't have. He knows our, our resources are limited. He knows that we're human. He knows that we're frail. And he doesn't despise that. He, he doesn't say, what don't you have? What he says is, what is in your hands? And then he says, give it to me. And let me take it. And let me bless it. And then let me multiply it. And then let me give it back to you to let you complete this miracle. You know, Walter Brueggemann is, a, is an Old Testament scholar, and, and there's a lot of things that he's written that I really like. But one of my favorite things that he's ever written is, is an article he wrote probably 20 years ago. And it's, it's called The Myth of Scarcity and the Liturgy of Abundance. And it's only about 10 pages long, but basically what he does is he traces the history of the people of God that from the very beginning, we've had kind of a hold on tight mindset. That we just hold on to God's resources and God's blessings till our knuckles are white because we think this is all we've got. This is all we're going to get. And we keep holding on and we keep holding on and, and we think if we give this away, we're not going to have enough for ourselves. And he said that is a complete myth of scarcity. He said the kingdom of God is not about scarcity. It's about, it's about worshiping of God of abundance who not only feeds until everyone is satisfied, but, but until there's leftovers, there's more than enough. And he tells a story about, you know, the children of Israel out in the wilderness and, and, and they don't have food, they don't have water, they don't have shelter, they don't have direction. God keeps coming every single day. He gives them bread from heaven. It's kind of interesting that the, uh, the Hebrews, they named the bread with a question mark. And the que here's what they named the bread. What is this? That's what manna means. What is this? But every single day, manna comes from heaven. It's there. They don't work for it. God provides it. And there's one stipulation that they have. The only stipulation is this. Whatever I give you on Monday, you can't store up for Tuesday. Because I'm going to give you more on Tuesday. You have to trust me. This is about trust. That what I give you on Monday manna, there's going to be Tuesday manna. And what's going to happen if you take Monday manna and you try to store it up for Tuesday? What happens to it? It goes bad. It turns rotten. The only time that they could actually store up is, is for the Sabbath. And that was a completely different day. And so this is about trust. You have to trust me that, that what I'm going to give you on Monday, there's going to be more on Tuesday, and there's going to be more on Wednesday. And the whole time we keep wondering, are we going to ever have enough? Why does this story keep getting told? 
to the church over and over again? Does the church still live with a sense of scarcity? What we don't have? Always kind of walking around feeling weak and anemic? Or what kind of a Jesus are we serving? Jesus just keeps saying, I know you're limited. I know you're finite. I'm not asking you what you don't have. I'm asking you what do you have? Give it to me. Put it in my hands. When I was pastoring Bethany First Church, God put a burden on my heart for the AIDS pandemic. This would have been probably somewhere about 2005, 2006, and, and I could not escape the burden of what was happening in sub-Saharan Africa. And it got to the place where every time I'd pray, it was the only thing that was in the front of my mind, and I'd, I'd dream about it at night until finally I just knew enough to say, God's ask, asking me to, to take the next step. So I made a phone call. It was to Larry Bollinger, who happened to be the, the head of Nazarene Compassionate Ministries at the time, and I said, Larry... I know this is a huge problem. It's a huge pandemic, AIDS. But, but what can one church do to make a difference? And I'll never forget what Larry said. He said, well, it's interesting you should say this because just, just last night I got home from Swaziland, Africa, this little tiny nation in South Africa. He said they have the highest HIV ratio in the world. 42% is what's reported that they either have HIV full-blown or they have the virus. He said, and that's what the government reports, so it's probably a lot higher than that. Maybe as much as 50% of the people. And he said, as a result, this little tiny nation of a million people, every, only, the, only the very young or the very old are surviving. Everybody in the middle is dying. They spend more time digging graves than they do planting crops. And he said their, their whole economy has completely collapsed. And now they have this huge hunger, uh, hunger issue. People are starving to death. I also knew because of Swaziland that, that we had a Nazarene history there. I mean, most Nazarenes have heard of the smells and boss. And I knew that was our first work in Africa. And so I knew that we had a strong church there. I also knew that we had a hospital there and we had 17 health clinics all throughout that country. And so we made a decision as a church, we're going we're gonna to partner with the nation of Swaziland and the church in Swaziland, and particularly we're going to come alongside the health part and, and we're going to see if we can make a difference. We knew that there were, there were 300,000 AIDS orphans. We took our very first go trip. We didn't call them work and witness because work and witness kind of is about 5% of the church. If you can swing a hammer, you can go and work and witness. But we wanted to make it open for everybody. If you're if you good at computers, if you want to kick soccer balls, if you want to rock AIDS babies, if, if you're an engineer, we want you to go. We went to Swaziland with that first GO team, and they said, we're going to take you to the worst place first. We're going to take you to Sitsatsawani. We drove the four hours into the Sitsatsawani Valley, and when we pulled over, in, over that ridge and looked down into that valley, I thought I had just entered a science fiction movie. The ground everywhere you look looked like the surface of Mars. Hard, dry, cracked. They hadn't seen rain in so many, in months and months and months. So the crops were gone. The, there was no livestock. There was nothing. 
when we pulled into that little compound with the Nazarene church, the Nazarene school, that little tiny health clinic, there, there were no animals, there were no flocks, there were no herds, there were just people who were starving to death who looked like they couldn't find a drink of water. It was, it was heartbreaking. But we started to do our work there, and one of the people that come with us is, is a man from Bethany First Church. He's an engineer whose name is Fred Evans. And, and I noticed as Fred was working, he kept looking over toward the school, and finally he kind of nudged me. He said, Pastor, look over there. He said, that, you see, that, that looks like a, a water well. And I looked over, and there was one of the big kind of water, uh, what are those called, Christy? Windmills that were turning there. But it wasn't turning. Because, because in Swaziland, if something breaks and it goes down, they, they can't, they don't have the means to fix it. So Fred said, I'm going to go look at that water well. We found out they had no clean water. They had to travel literally miles just to get any kind of clean water. So Fred went over, he spent a couple of hours, he looked at the water well, and he came back to me and said, Pastor, I think there's water down there. In fact, I think there's a lot of water. But the problem is they just can't get it to going. It, you know, something in the infrastructure breaks, they can't restore it again. And so Fred said, I'm going to go home, I'm going to work on this. Fred went home, and three months later, he came to my office there in Bethany, and he, I remember the day he put it on my desk. He said, there it is, Pastor. He said, there's nothing else like that in the entire world. It's the very first solar panel water well. I said, what do you mean there's nothing like it in the world? He said, there's, I haven't found anything close to it. The only thing that has to happen for it to run is for the sun to come out. And he said, as long as the sun comes out in the morning, that thing is going to pump water until Jesus comes back. I said, how, long is it going to t how, how much is it going to take to make that prototype? He said, $25,000. I said, we'll build it. Fred builds the prototype. We send Fred back to Sitsatsawani. He puts it right there at that, at that Nazarene compound. And you're not going to believe it. It worked. It really worked. And not only was there water, Fred was right, there was a lot of water. In fact, it just started pumping so much water, they didn't even know what to do with all the water. In fact, it became such a kind of a well-known place that Coca-Cola Foundation found out about the Sitsatsawani project. I have no idea how that happened. I think somebody was in New York City somewhere, and they're all trying to figure out the global pandemic. In fact, if you look at your bottle of water right now, there's a very good chance it's going to say Coca-Cola Foundation on the bottom of it because they're responsible for creating a lot of the world's clean water. But they could not figure out sub-Saharan Africa. Everything was broken. And they were kind of out of ideas, and somebody at the desk said, does anybody have any other ideas? And somebody said... Don't get mad at me, don't laugh. But we heard about a project in Sitsatsawani. It's, it's a solar panel water well. They said, who made it? They said, we don't know. They said, go find out. They find out that Fred Evans in Bethany, Oklahoma makes this prototype. So Coca-Cola Foundation calls Fred Evans. And they said, we want to buy your prototype. And Fred said, how much do you want to give me for it? They said, a million dollars. Fred said, let me pray about it. Yes, the answer is yes. <laughs> But Fred said, I don't want you to give me the million dollars. I want you to put it back into water wells all throughout sub-Saharan Africa. And I want you to start with the 17 Nazarene health clinics in Swaziland. Coca-Cola said, we can do that. So all across southern Africa, Coca-Cola starts putting in Fred's water wells. One year goes by. 
I go back to Swaziland, and they say, now we know you're going to do a lot of other stuff, but we want you to go back to Sitsatsawani. You won't believe it. So we get in the van, we drive back the four hours. My brother and sister, when we cross that hill again, and I look down into that valley, I couldn't believe my eyes again. Only this time it was because as far as the eye could see, crops in the field, cattle, kids walking around with, with their sticks herding sheep and goats. When we pulled up into that compound, there was a thousand people from the village that were there. Not just Nazarenes, but there were people from all over the place. And when we pulled our vans in, they were all going, la, 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 la. That's, that's kind of swazi for we're glad you're here. And when I get out of the van, they go, la, 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 la. where's Fred? They didn't care I was there. They want to know, where's Fred Evans? And then the, the, the Coca-Cola people were there. They came up to me and they said, are you the pastor of this operation? I said, no, I'm one of the pastors. They said, well, can we just tell you, we've never seen anybody like these Nazarenes. He said, we keep, everywhere we put in these Nazarene health clinic things, we keep saying, do you want us to put the pipes so that you, you can kind of keep your water? And they, they would laugh at us. They say, this isn't our water, this is God's water. God's going to provide what we need and we're going to share it with everybody else. And as soon as he finished telling me that, with those thousand people around me, for the very first time, I don't know why I hadn't seen it before, I noticed it. There it was, right over there. And there was more right there. And all over there, all over the ground, green grass. Real green grass, flowers. And that's when I knew God was in this place. The kingdom was breaking in. God was doing something that we couldn't do for ourselves. And as I sat there and I looked at that grass all around me and tears started to come to my eyes, I thought, how did this happen? And then I remembered it was because there was one man who had a vision. And, and a man named Fred said, Lord, look at this incredible, vast need all around us. What, somebody's got to do something about this, Lord. And God said, Fred, you do something. Fred said, Lord, I, I can't fix this. All I can do is make stuff. And Jesus said, Fred, what do you have? Give it to me. I know what you can't do, Fred, but what do you have? Put it in my hands. And let me bless it. And let me multiply it. And then let me put it back into your hands and feed thousands. And my brother and sister, that story gets repeated all the time. That even gets repeated in Napa, Idaho. I know how hard these last 16 months have been for you and for the whole world. COVID has been hard. And, and it's stretched our resources. But here's what I know. Even as I look here at this, this beautiful sanctuary and what's happened here, and I celebrate what God has done in helping you to create this sacred place and space. But here's what I think is going to happen. Even this year, it doesn't matter what's happening with the rise of this or the arguments or disagreements about that. God's going to keep coming to you as you see the needs around you. And he's going to keep saying... You do something about this. 
What do you have? Put it in my hands and watch what I can do through you. And you know what's going to happen from time to time? Every now and then, right in the middle of your being obedient and giving what you have and letting Jesus complete the miracle, you're going to look around and you're going to say, oh, look, there's green grass. And you're going to know that the new creation is coming. And God is using you to make that come to pass. Jesus, thank you for this new creation community called Napa College. Thank you, Lord, for the ways that they have responded to the needs all around them. And we pray now in Jesus' name that you will help them to keep giving you what they have and that you will continue to multiply this until not only is everyone fed, but people are fully satisfied. You are the God of extravagance. We thank you for the green grass that we see all around us.